Hello, this is JFL, John Francis Leader, and welcome to the Body, Mind, Self podcast. So my guest today is Abeba Bahrain. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. So I've wanted to have you on for a while. Uh, we uh, have a shared adventure in the Cognitive Science program here in University College Dublin. And uh, you, I suppose, are probably a bit hard to define, which is why I'm going to try and let you do that <laughs> yes. to some degree now in a moment. Yes. Um, but that's, I think, what I liked about you and your work is uh, it's touching on some very, very interesting topics that might at first glance seem like separate things, but they actually have a way of meeting and coming oh, together. Well, I'm only on my first year of my PhD and I have uh, so much interest in so many different fields and hopefully the idea is things will kind of come together mm. and, uh, you know, make the dots will somehow uh, make a line and people, uh, things will kind of make sense. Absolutely. Well, uh, it's, it's certainly, I think, happening to at least some degree already. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just as a quick side point, um, that's one, one of my experiences uh, in UCD is uh, the amazing humility that so many researchers have. If you even think about the sentence only in the first year of my PhD, yes. you know, th th isn't it? There's <laughs> yes. a sentence even. Yes. That's great. You know, it's, it's, it's a great attitude in so many ways. Yeah. But I suppose the life story alone, what to speak of the even just the academic research yeah. you've done, but the life story alone to get you to this point inevitably has to be so much, you know, to be at a point like this. So how would you introduce yourself to somebody who does to know you uh, and your work where, where, where do you come from what are you what are you interested in who, who are you also, okay that's also a <laughs> difficult question but I will try to give a straightforward answer as much as I can sure uh, so academic my academic background is uh, also very interdisciplinary when I did my undergrad back home in Ethiopia I started out doing physics Oh yeah. Uh, but after the first year, I just couldn't cope with all the calculus and mm -hmm. mathematics was compulsory. After the first year of uh, my degree, I switched to, you wouldn't guess to which department, mm. to English. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then uh, I finished um, my, my undergrad there. And then I came to Ireland and I um, did a psychology degree and then I moved on to doing philosophy and then uh, cognitive science masters just a couple of years ago. Mm. And now I'm doing um, cognitive science PhD again and mm. it couldn't get any more interdisciplinary. Absolutely. As cognitive science you have, uh, well, we've mm. I'm sure you are aware of it, you have uh, disciplines like psychology, neuroscience, artificial intelligence, philosophy, even anthropology, any discipline that deals with the mind or yeah. human behavior yeah. coming together to kind of make sense of mm -hmm. why we behave the way we behave and how the mind works. And if your initial motivation from leaving physics was to make your life easier, <laughs> did, did you achieve that goal at all? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, Probably not, but I do. I do somehow regret leaving physics because um, it's it comes back to haunt me uh, because I feel like I could do with a lot more mathematical knowledge. Yeah, uh, I do. A, I see a lot of these great programmers. Uh, True. Yeah. Doing great codes, and I I I do work with them, but sometimes I wish I could also code as as well as them. I do also 
understand the mathematics behind it. I feel like that every morning, <laughs> isn't it? It's amazing, I yeah. suppose, the, the skill sets. If you, I suppose, hide in a corner, isn't it? And, and by that, I mean you have a, a kind of a topic or an area of interest that you, you know, really enclose yourself in. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad, but if you do that, there's some sense in which you might feel a mastery of it because you've defined it in a way that allows that. But when you do what you seem to be doing, and I think it's something I've been trying to do too, and you go truly multidisciplinary, by definition, I suppose, isn't it? The bounds just become so big. It's quite hard to feel that point of completion. Exactly, exactly. But also the brilliant thing about it is you get insights from all sorts of disciplines, from all sorts of people that you work with, Mm -hmm. and you are constantly at a much more informed position at at a much at at an advantaged point of view Mm -hmm. Uh, for example uh, at the moment I'm working with some economists and Mm. uh, I have never done anything with economists before but it's kind of it's it's brilliant in a way because I get to even though I may not add so much to the conversation it kind of lets me kind of absorb the kind of language and the kind of discourse right. around. Right. And uh, I am more aware of the, the whole general theme now. And with some so. of the, the, the topics that you have been focusing on, that transition from whatever you were interested in before you started studying physics and yeah. just, just your childhood interests even – through to that and then through to some of the subjects that you, you, you've you moved through and I'm sure brought with you along the way. Has it felt for you that you've been kind of doing the same thing throughout but in different ways or has it felt like a radical shift from subject to subject? What What's it felt like? Uh, a bit of both. In a way, there is a consistent theme which is the the interest and the, the, the eagerness to kind of understand mm. what uh, what we call the self is yes. and uh, what human behavior is mm-hmm. so even though there has been I've been jumping from discipline to discipline yeah it had at the, at the core of it it had that mm-hmm. essence that uh, I'm still looking at how we develop a sense of self and right. how we come to know ourselves and what different perspectives there are to mm-hmm. to investigate those issues. Yeah, because there is, as you say, quite different language, but there seems to be something at core, isn't it, which is quite universal. And the closest, I think, to, to, to trying to turn that into a language seems to be something like systems theory or something along those lines yeah. that is, is sort of it allows those relationships to be brought into it, I suppose, a little bit more. So maybe before we jump into some of the depth, how would you overview what some of your interests are at the moment in terms of your research or what you're focusing on? Okay, uh, another great and difficult question. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, an, an overview on, an overview would be, again, uh, this attempt to 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 understand or to see how different disciplines come at the self mm-hmm. so uh, mainly I'm um, I'm interested in the non-western or non-cartesian uh, yes I know they are not interchangeable mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and Descartes usually gets blamed for everything western but let's mm-hmm. not go there mm-hmm. 
uh, yeah, I'm I'm interested in in uh, in the the different perspectives, the alternative ways of coming at the self. Yeah. Uh, but also, I have interests in in other areas. Uh, for example, where uh, technological developments meet the the social sphere. Right. Uh, say for example uh, when we do banking or Mm -hmm. when we are applying for insurance or anything like that uh, there is usually algorithms that Mm -hmm. calculate our worthiness Mm. and so do you relate those you know broad to broad topic areas i'm hoping they will relate at some stage yeah (laughs) yes I love that because something I'm a huge, huge fan of is, is just application, you know, is putting things into practice. And, uh, you know, I, I completely get, of course, that there are going to be people who, you know, really focus in on the research and, you know, aren't necessarily practitioners in a thing. That That's completely fine. That can be an applied uh, thing in its own way. But there's nothing more beautiful, I suppose, than to take great ideas or good research and not leave it on a bookshelf gathering dust or exactly. on a USB key exactly. somewhere and to take yes. it and do something with it, isn't yes. it? It's so exciting in that way. So yeah, I think that's what I hear when you mention those two topic areas yeah, because yeah, yeah. when we start talking about self and its its nature, I mean, that's a great topic. It's a fascinating topic, but there's a danger, isn't it? It gets doomed to a philosophy textbook <laughs> somewhere, which is so unfortunate because surely self, if, if there's anything to be said about it, there's something to be said about it in an applied sense, in a day-to-day sense that would seem to matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, well, I have, to, I have to clarify. I'm not really trying to philosophize about the self or trying to define the self, but I'm just looking at the the... We have such a predominant view of, you know, a Western view of the self here. We don't even see, you have to try really hard to see outside that framework. Mm. So what I'm trying is to to kind of bring those different perspectives from Ubuntu African philosophy uh, and from a lot of uh, Eastern philosophy as well. Wonderful. And um, in, in doing that... Is that is that intuitively does it does it come easily? I'm sure it takes a lot of work either way, but does it intuitively come easy, or do, does it feel like you know, the crashing together of very different ideas? Uh, well, um, sometimes it could be it could be difficult, but sometimes when you have you know great worked out concrete examples, right, right, it's just you can't just refute that. Mm. Uh, I'll give you an example. Mm. Uh, take the the solitary confinement, for example. Okay. So the original idea of solitary confinement was for prisoners to to just lock themselves away, mm. just to talk to God, to cleanse themselves, and mm. to reflect on their sins, and to come out, mm. you know, pure and clean back into society. Yes. Yeah. That is very much uh, that uh, that's uh, that idea is underpinned in in a very Western uh, conception of the self mm. that just you know you are individual and you don't need others in order to to sustain your sense of self yeah. that you are, are logical and self-sustaining and right. self-contained system right. which is very problematic mm. and, and uh, that solitary confinement example clearly shows how fallacious it is uh, because if you 
put people prisoners in soli- mm. solitary confinement for long enough mm. there has been lots of research they just lose their sense of self they suffer from insomnia they are they lose okay. a sense of time yeah. and they their sense of self is completely distorted again i can see the value in what you just said which is yeah. bringing in a worked out example like that yeah. isn't it because i mean it shows how it matters but the, the the kind of the pictures it conjures up the sense that you're creating and just using that example which is an important example uh it kind of gives us something to kind of cognitively latch on to isn't it yeah. in order to manipulate the ideas when they're in the world of pure abstraction yeah it'd be quite hard to do that yeah yeah exactly mm. it's a useful yes. thinking tool as well as a real world impo- you yeah. know, issue of yeah. importance as well so let, let's jump into that a bit more the, the, the question of self because that certainly seems to be a, a key theme in, in your work and your research um to start off very very simply uh to begin with uh, what is self? <laughs> oh. <laughs> what, what, what do people even think it is? I mean, what are some of the popular definitions that you've come across? Uh, the popular definitions seems to be, you know, just, you know, if you you are just self-contained and if you do a lot of, you know, reasoning and, and logical analysis, you, you know, about mm-hmm. solving certain problems... Or if you just look away, if you look yourself away and do, you know, all sorts of thinking, you will kind of mm. discover your true self. I think that's the kind of idea I'm trying to move away and and uh, say, no, look, we mm. are essentially relational. We need others, okay. and we are we are also embodied. The body plays a, a really mm. crucial part. Our embodied experience mm. informs us, informs our sense of self. For example, even now, mm. through talking to you, uh, I'm kind of anticipating, yeah. and it's the self is a process. It's something yeah. that that's continual. Absolutely. So, in in a way, you are some in uh, somehow shaping my my sense of self, my right. s- my thoughts, and my my the kind of language i'm going mm. to use and what i'm going to say so we are essentially relational mm. and our conversations and our dialogues with others matter and are essential in in defining the self that's such a central point isn't it with so many um so many applications and in a sense when you use examples like that uh, yeah. of interpersonal communication so obvious really when you stop to reflect to it yeah because you know if you think about maybe 10 conversations you had with 10 people and inevitably they will have felt different isn't it you 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 feel like a different version of yourself Definitely. isn't it in those moments sometimes it flows Definitely, easily other yeah. times even saying one word isn't it yeah. feels difficult that's the beauty. but you're still you in inverted commas course, so you're course, bringing yeah. the same thing to the table yeah, yeah. It's fascinating yeah that's that's i think the the beauty of you know you know coming at the self as more of a dynamic continual constantly in flux perspective right, right. rather than oh that's john and yeah. I, i'll put you in a box and i'll define you in a certain way yes exactly so this kind of dynamical relational perspective allows you to be different in mm. different contexts in in different mm. environments and uh, certainly the kind of conversations we are having 
the kind of conversation mm. I'm having with you in this context, in this environment, with a certain kind of, you know, unstated assumptions yes, as yeah. to how, you know, mm. podcasts are supposed to take. Exactly, yeah. It's different if I go off, say, with, with my friends on a night out. Yeah. Or if I go for a family reunion, mm. I will essentially behave differently. Mm. Uh, I'll have different things to say. There will be different norms to to mm. follow. So that kind of dynamical self allows you to to see the self as contextual and relational right. and right. dependent on others and contexts. And, and that 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 notion of you know how we come to view self to begin with, uh, and as you say the. The kind of Rene Descartes uh, Western, for want of better expressions, yeah. really way of, of summing what that means uh, of, of of looking at that. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? Because to such a degree, I think many of us have inherited that rather than chosen it at exactly. any point. Exactly. And I'm also I'm just thinking there of your your uh, solitary confinement example, because. You know, these types of things, wherever they've come from originally, yeah. whoever designed them, wherever they, they came from, it certainly isn't the warden coming in on Tuesday morning who's designing that process, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know, they, they, we, we kind of inherit these yes. things and we yes. work within yeah. the patterns yeah. that we have. Yeah. And sometimes, of course, the people who do design yeah. them are removed from exactly. the actual implementation yeah. of them. Yeah. So there seems to be something similar going on with selfhood generally, yeah. isn't it? We just ended up with this thing. Yeah. And... Uh, Unsurprisingly, we still have those assumptions. We have still those inherited assumptions yeah. so implicit we are not even aware of them. Right. If you look right. at yeah. a, a, you know most of traditional you know scientific psychology, mm. the way it approaches the self is as if it is you know very individualistic, yeah. very self-contained. Mm -hmm. If, for example, if you took a look look at examples of uh, experiments on in, on uh, memory. Yeah. People are often taken out of their social context, which mm. is essential, and they are brought into labs in, and given a, you know, a list of words or mm. numbers to, to regurgitate and then to remember mm. those words which may not have you know, any meaning at all. So yeah. Yeah. you see those kind of you know, Cartesian unstated assumptions still... Context being removed. Yeah, it's yeah. still infiltrating, you know, a lot of our, you know, disciplines that are... I see. ...in the human sciences anyway. So the concern there presumably is th the output of that type of research is likely to not be really what we want it to be because it's not capturing the full phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might reveal something yeah. about, you know... Yeah how the brain works in terms of remembering. But it's not going to give you the full picture. Yeah, sure. Because it's just, you know, the white room is not your natural environment. Yes. <laughs> and what are the implications of that academically? Because there seem to be at least a couple of things that are, are somewhat attention there. Yeah. Because 
we've we've said okay something's relational the context yeah. matters we want to bring all this into the mix in order to gather good data that we can use for yeah, something useful yeah. so that, that that's one point and that sounds fair yeah uh the, the the other thing though i suppose is our tendency to want to be reductive in science exactly. and of course there is a need the notion of dependent and independent variables to kind of yeah. break things down to some degree because of course if we literally go very zen about it and we yeah. say well Yes. It's kind of just one thing going on in some sense. <laughs> yes. It gets pretty tricky to do yeah. science. Yes. How yeah. do you look at that relationship that's, in practice? That's, I obviously don't have the clear answer for that. But I think that's, that is an irremovable, irremovable tension, mm. uh, which reminds me of uh, Geert's uh, cultural interpretations passage mm. where he... Uh, he zooms into a certain culture and records, you know, does mm. ethnof ethnographic records of very detailed descriptions, mm. and it's it's it gives you the best insight, the best description okay, yeah. of knowing how that certain culture works and mm. how those certain groups work in what context, under what assumptions, mm. and it you know it gives you the full history. Mm. But this is where the removable tension comes from. Yeah, those descriptions, those details, might just remain there. Mm. You may not find a general pattern in order to say, mm. "Oh, this is culture," or "This is how you know yeah, this sure. society works." Yeah. So it's it's a balance that you have to somehow find. Mm. You know, to choose between you know going deep yeah. providing a brilliant description and explanation on on the one hand yeah. but also trying to find generalizable patterns and to kind of come up with a science of say you know the self or yes. culture yeah so. I'm, I'm, I'm sure if we go back even a few years ago in in in, in science the word science and self in the same sentence would never have been yes. uttered isn't it so i hope that's some form of progress I think, though, just even a, a consciousness of, yeah. isn't it what, you, what we're talking about? Yeah. There, this sort of tension between it goes so far by itself. It does. It's it a does. sort of an inbuilt humility, but not a d disabling one. Yes. You know, one yes. that, that just lets us be a bit cautious in doing what we're exactly. doing. And kind exactly. of add a few disclaimers along the way. Yes. And also it points back to the multidisciplinary yes. nature of it, isn't it? Because we, we need each other, quite yes. simply, isn't it, in the exactly. sense to have an overview? Yes, yeah, yeah. The more you focus on, you know, specific person's mm. experience or history or yeah. culture, the the more difficult it is to kind of zoom out. Yeah, yeah. To come up with some sort of science to generalize, mm -hmm. you know, about the nature of. I think not only uh, anthropology, mm. also phenomenology to mm. to a certain extent has this tension of this problem where mm. phenomenology focuses on the lived experience on the body then trying to bring it to another level mm. to to you know uh, to a mm generalizable science yes uh, th 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 it seems to be a bit of a, a golden era potentially for people who were in fields that might 
been looked at as being a bit peculiar at certain yeah. points in the past, yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah. And I- again, to be fair, sometimes they were, but to no fault of their own, they just needed, I suppose, a scientific format that actually embraced them yes. rather than dismiss them yeah. in some way. Exactly. And, you know, there's humility on both sides. We're in a pretty good place. It would be terrible to have, I suppose, uh, all the structure, but none of the content or all of the content, but we can't actually appreciate the content because of a lack of structure. And exactly. there seem to be some people, like you talked about Eastern approaches, for example. Yeah. And there's so many, you know, incredibly well-developed schools of philosophy, but uh, no, it's not that they haven't written a huge amount, and it's not that they don't have, you know, certainly forms of science as part of their function too. They exactly. certainly do. But because many of the ways in which they manifest or, or exist today are in a very applied format, un- unfortunately they seem to be excluded uh, at certain points in the past from kind of mainstream study, certainly in the Western format, as you talked about. And then again, the reverse, there might be some very good research questions, even at points in in empirical science, but it's not looking at as richly as it could as some of the good stuff that's really going on in in those types of fields. What's that been like for you? Because you've talked about what what is an Ubuntu perspective. You've talked about Eastern approaches. You've uh, talked about, uh, and of course, West, Western psychology, typically, yeah. what's happening in, in kind of the coming together of some of these things that, that you've seen in your journey? Uh, <coughs> what I like about, uh, I don't, I have to admit, uh, I'm not an expert in, in the Eastern perspectives. Mm. Uh, I know a little bit about Ubuntu, mm. but what they have in common is uh, this shared uh, emphasis for for you know for otherness mm. it's um through the the gla- through if you look through the perspectives of uh, ubuntu and yeah. some eastern philosophy i'm sure you would know more than i would well, on, i on certainly don't know no no as much <laughs> as i could let's put <laughs> yeah. it that way but yeah, yeah even some some in, uh, russian intellectuals sure. uh, like bakhtin and vygotsky yeah uh, so having you know, some sort of knowledge, well, bits and pieces from these different perspectives, mm-hmm. then the Western approach kind of st- stands on its own as, mm-hmm. you know, the outlier rather than the norm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In in uh, in the way it emphasizes, you know, individualism and mm-hmm. self, 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 you know, sustaining mm-hmm. uh yeah, so those different perspectives kind of... They embrace that relational yeah, that, type that approach that, relational, that you're talking about. Yeah, uh, that dialogical... And the the Ubuntu, um, I don't know, I can't, can't speak for, for my <laughs> listeners, but certainly for me, it'd be something I'd be less familiar with than a number of Eastern approaches, which, you know, I suppose a lot of us think we know, but probably don't know in terms yeah. of their depth anyway. Yeah. But, but, but what has been your experience of uh, Ubuntu philosophy? What, how would you uh, uh, kind of em- emphasize some of the core points within it? Uh, well, it's Ubuntu is huge, and I can't speak for all mm. of it, and I only... Uh, I'm familiar with the aspect of Ubuntu that sure. I see relevant to my research, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is the way uh, the self is kind of approached. Mm. Uh, so it's it's um, at the core of it is instead of I think therefore I am, mm. you have uh, I know uh, I am because we are. Okay. So you come to know yourself through others. Mm. 
and others are essential in order for you to develop your sense of self. Mm, mm. And, you know, one, one stark difference between a uh, Western approach and the Ubuntu, for example, mm. would be uh, uh, you have uh, individual rights for, for the infant from the time the infant is born. Mm. Even before it's born, you have mm. these ad, uh, abortion debates. Mm. But um, for the Ubuntu philosophy, for the Ubuntu approach, the self is not something that's granted, you know, through conception or at birth. Right. It's something you you gradually develop and right. it's something you gradually work. Mm. And um, that intuitively makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Does, it? Because yeah, if yeah. you think the reason I can kind of relate to that is because in my applied therapeutic work, working with people. The issue of self-concept is, you know, typically the psychological construct that would be used to talk about self in that sense. And uh, self-concept, of course, can be problematic because we mightn't quite have the one we want. The kind of simple way I usually equate it is it's a bit like the difference between um, uh, the buildings, the, the, the warehouses, the staff of a company and its brand. Yes, you know, yeah. so the, the brand is so powerful. If you got a call from the lawyers from Coca-Cola who said, listen, we're going to give it to you, but you can only have one. You can have all of those assets yeah. or you can <laughs> have the brand. Okay. You'd want the brand really any day of the week. That'd be where the value is. Yeah. The other things can be replaced, but the, the brand, yes. you know, would be the, the value. And it's funny because you wouldn't really get anything in return. And if, if all of the people left Earth and went to another planet, suddenly the brand would be worthless. Exactly. It's this weird distributed exactly. thing that we share in some exactly, respects. Yes. So there seems to be something similar going on with a self-concept. It's a yes, sort of personal yeah. brand. And like you said, that the baby, baby doesn't think it's a good baby. doesn't no. think it's a bad baby. <laughs> it doesn't even think it's a baby. Exactly. Isn't it? It, yeah. it just is in yeah. some sense. And without others mm. to, to nourish it and to, you know, yeah. help it uh, develop its sense of self it yes. just wouldn't it's mm. well it probably would but it would be a very different story <laughs> and if it gets raised by wolves or something that it's a, yeah. it's a very different story <laughs> yeah, isn't it you yeah that story of yeah the, the avon boy that's right sense, yeah 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 uh, so yes others are central and mm. uh, yeah even in ethiopia in in um in a tribe in the south, uh, you have this uh, ceremony for boys and girls. It's different, of course, mm. uh, in order to mark, you know, your 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 uh, sense of self. Okay, you would yeah. Have for a boy, I think it's at the age of sixteen or something like mm. that. So the the villagers would line up. Uh, I think about four or five oxen. Yeah, and the boy would have to jump through all those okay. in order to show he is now you know <laughs> i see i see he can be a man in his very interesting yeah, yeah. And, and that's actually something i've 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 heard some some theorists talk about um quite a while back but i thought it was an interesting point they were commenting that a lot of and i'm no expert on this but they were saying a lot of cultures both african cultures eastern cultures they were talking about a yeah. lot of a lot of i suppose quite well-established societies. In other words, they've been around a long time, longer than, you know, some of the new world, tend to have some form of rite of passage in that sense, some kind of marking of adulthood. And the the, the kind of the comment was made was that 
we seem to broadly in the West lack something like that. Now, it's not quite true because we do have certain things like that, but they, they seem to be a little bit different. They seem to be more celebrations rather than, you know, kind of a right of a passage in that sense, which is very formalized. But some of the theorizing around it uh, is, is that that's kind of a symbolic point to yeah. be able to take ownership in that sense, yes. which is, is, is sort of psychologically and developmentally useful in, in some way. Have you met that at all in either your personal experience or your research? Uh, say that again. Yeah, it's like this sort of continuity where we just sort of are born and we grow up and we end up as an adult and we go, what happened? Versus yeah. actually having some point in time where we kind of symbolically mark it and yes. go, all right, now. <laughs> and there's a chance to begin a new chapter in some sense. Exactly. Does that yeah. have value, do you think? Yeah. Uh, personally, yes, it's something I think about. And uh, I do sometimes wake up and go, oh, shit, this is, mm. this is my life and this is yeah. me. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how did I end up here? And... Yeah, where is this going? Because <laughs> we inherit so much, isn't yes, it? So, yes, Because, you know, and some people make the point that actually having a ceremony where you literally go, all right, yes. now that bit, because yeah. there's a difference, isn't it? Because we, as a sense, we talk about that baby. Yeah. We, by definition, as part of the, the, this relational aspect, we have to do what we're told as a child to, to some extent. We have to kind of take a lot on board, I suppose, but then at a certain point, we're expected to do the opposite. Exactly. Isn't it? We're expected to have autonomy in that way. And in a sense, that can be the opposite of what we were trained to do exactly. in some respect. Exactly. So we have to, and there's an important distinction here, of course, between blame and responsibility. Yeah. But there's a sort of an ownership, isn't yes. it, that needs to come yes. at a certain point. Yeah. And I think it's not often clear where that happens, I suppose, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. fuzzy. Yeah. And I have, a, I have, I have this um, sense of feeling that it, it kind of differs if you say compare the Western perspective as opposed to with the Ubuntu. Mm. Uh, with the Ubuntu, because so much of life is, you know, communal and okay, yeah. uh, Ubuntu is actually more than just a philosophy. It's also a way of life. Yeah. It, it also incorporates politics and religion, mm. uh, everything. It's, yeah. it's a way of life. It's... Uh, there is less of uh, a blame on the individual person. Mm. Mm. Uh, even children, when they are being brought up, are seen as a responsibility of the community, not I just see. the I mother see. and father. Mm. If you see a child doing something on the road, you have, as ad an adult, a responsibility to, to encourage yeah. or to discipline if that mm -hmm. child is not, if, if that child is doing something that sure. they aren't supposed to be. Uh, so there is more of uh, a shared responsibility rather than, uh, say, you, what you see here in the West where mm. people are more, um, more in a way, you know, self-sustained and they live compared to the, the Ubuntu approach anyway, a more individualistic yeah. kind of uh, life where mm. privacy is very central where you right. don't want others interfering with your affairs or yeah your exactly uh, 
Uh, I'm thinking about how within I- individual cultures, um, you know, because we can obviously generalize Eastern and Western, but you know, obviously there's mixes of shades of gray in different regions, different communities and traditions. But for want of a better term, they are very useful because yeah. they do seem to point to, to to a big difference between a kind of an individualistic or a, or a more relational or collective or whatever term we want to use type approach. But I'm thinking about like a country like Ireland where you have a kind of a colliding of some of those worldviews as well, don't you? Because for somebody, uh, you know, who's of an older generation in Ireland who grew up in a very rural area, that more community, local village lifestyle, everybody being in everybody's business, maybe in a good way, maybe not, but that was, I suppose, something that was taken for granted. You certainly would take responsibility for what you saw somebody else do, a kid, etc. But we we don't just have that in our culture. We then have the other thing you're talking about, which is this very segmented, mind your own business kind of a thing. And it's interesting how you see the meeting of that and and the friction (laughs) between it. We've got these different subcultures colliding sometimes. That that tension again Mm. uh, between tradition and progress so one of the issues I have with, uh, you know, the Ubuntu approach is mm. it's very traditional, which means, you know, it's it's very male-dominated. Right. There are certain roles for, you know, elders, for males and for females. Yeah. So even though I love the, the communal, the tradition, the relational aspect of it, mm-hmm. You know, some aspect of it, I it just clashes with my own personal views. Say sure. when it comes to, you know, I, I, I can see myself as a radical feminist. Mm. So I like to think um, there shouldn't be roles specific for women or yeah. men. I, I like to think, you know, gender or sex, something that's fluid that you can mm. just uh, work your way across without yeah. any, you know traditions preventing you sure so there is that tension again Mm. so (laughs) yeah um, it's interesting how that itself is is sort of relationally originated in that you know some strong patriarchy in a society essentially is the ultimate you know source for feminism isn't it because again it's that that tension we we, the experience of one thing makes us reflect isn't it and then realize the other thing exactly in a sense the the, the cure for a disease is invented because of the disease. That's exactly. the biggest source or motivator, <laughs> exactly. isn't it? You know, to bring it together. Yes. So all the problems tend to be important drivers in yep. it. Uh, how how can we have the best of both, I suppose? Uh, I think the best thing is, uh, what I'm doing at the moment is mm. just being aware of it mm. and, you know, just moving fluidly between the different roles rather than right. saying I'm a traditionalist or I'm a progressive or I'm a radical mm. feminist. It's because, you know, we are dynamical, relational, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, systems that we can, depending on, you know, what's been discussed or what the central issue is, mm. as long as you are aware that there is different perspectives, there is different tensions, mm. I think you are in a better position to kind of place yourself at the best position then. Mm. So awareness again of the different perspectives and just being comfortable knowing that sometimes, well, most of the time, Mm. you just can't have the best of both worlds and just, you know, 
adjust yourself that's depending a, on it's <laughs> a very very important point and it brings yeah. in that point of kind of personal ownership i suppose as well of, of of what you're doing and that point of kind of inheriting belief systems and you know we we got to be quite careful don't we in 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 doing that and just taking these structures that are kind of handed to us from people before us and we got to be careful, even if we knew for certain that they absolutely meant their best. Exactly, yes. <laughs> because, you know, this is iterative, isn't yeah. it? We're developing ideas, we're learning and we're growing. Exactly. So we don't want to just accept something because it was done. We don't want to just reject it, of course, because it was done either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we want to be able to, you know, build on yes. that knowledge and that experience in some way. So that, you know, what some people might see as picking and choosing it is that, but in a positive way, yeah, because yeah. after all, if we don't pick or choose, that is already a form of picking and choosing in a sense, because the structures, the yeah. particular culture we inherit. Yes, exactly. And uh, came from somewhere. I'm, I'm kind of speaking from personal experience. Uh, I know you have, it's better to be kind of, you know, consistent in your decision making, in your, you know, ethics and morals and all that. But sometimes... For example, I can never have, uh, you know, a conversation about religion with my mother. Okay, yeah, that is, yeah, yeah. That's just not that's re be. relational strategies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have <laughs> so, to be context sensitive. Yeah. So when it comes to you know a conversation with my mom that concerns religion, I'm just gonna drop my my strong, mm. uh, you know, atheist stand and just mm. you know pray when she brings the food out and go right. along with her way uh, mm. because it's not just not gonna you know bring okay. any productive discussions we are just not gonna meet halfway yes so, i see uh, yeah yeah a lot of you know politics now especially when you know the far right and the far left yeah it's they are just so you know far apart mm. it's it's it seems impossible to see the middle yeah, way. Yeah. So. Um, uh, right. Exactly. Very, very <laughs> true. But, but that's a really nice point because, um, you know, you, you could go either way, couldn't you? You could say, OK, well, I'm going to adopt a stance. This is a position I have and that could, could lead to exclusion. So, for example, if somebody has an atheistic perspective of the world, that could naturally lead to a rejection of, of, of you know, religious practice in some way. Yeah. Or it could go exactly the opposite. Yes. And they could therefore feel comfortable going to many churches, mosques, prayer centers. Yeah, yeah spiritual traditions etc and kind of the example is 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 coming forward of um like of an anthropologist yeah. you, know, you know you know you read anthropological writings sometimes and this person has a very different background yes. but they're living in some tribe they're participating yes. in some culture yes and it certainly may not be what matches their particular convictions yes but they're there with a curiosity and a fascination and when the person exactly and yes. when the person's talking about some strange phenomena they're not necessarily believing it to, yeah. to be the case but they have a an interest and an openness exactly. as you say to yeah, it yeah. there and seems to be room for that, that kind of mode of inquiry yes yeah uh, in, in in that context in that example you just suspend your own belief and mm. you approaches with open mind that way you learn and understand so much about that yeah you know unfamiliar territory yeah. let's say uh, but when it comes to you know having very strongly different mm. perspectives uh, yeah I, I try to give the other the benefit of the doubt yeah. and I tried to engage in a more you know positive way that would somehow in the 
end up me changing my mind or the other person, you know, meeting okay. me halfway or something like yeah. that. Uh, but sometimes when that's not there, you just have to, <laughs> you just have to yeah. leave it and say. Uh, you do. You have yeah. to <laughs> pick your battles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's another one of those tensions, yeah. isn't it? Because, yeah. uh, you know, the, the mode of being the anthropologist, and yeah. we can all do that in a day-to-day sense. We can kind of go into this mode of inquiry where, you know, we, we have a curiosity about what's happening without validating it or fighting it in that exactly. moment, but we're just sort of an inquiry. The problem, I suppose, with that, though, is there's another aspect of ourselves wh- who kind of feels the need to to stand up for what we believe and not even for our own purposes. Exactly. It, could be enti- it could come at a cost to us, actually, yeah. in that moment, but that sense of responsibility, albeit socially. Yes. So it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because if you were the anthropologist visiting a different culture, yeah. where is the line, isn't it, where, where you, on yeah. one hand, you just observe things yes. passively, but there probably is a point. If yeah. somebody, you know, you're in some ancient south american civilization that's about to sacrifice a child or yes, something yes. where you go okay i'm not an anthropologist anymore <laughs> yeah. i'm going to get involved in this yeah, yeah, yeah. it's an interesting one isn't it because that can can happen yeah yeah uh well i'm not an, an anthropologist by training and i mean uh, that casually of course yes. just as a <laughs> <laughs> but uh anthropology doesn't you know has a really dark history sure. of course you know all these western male anthropologists going and you know even you know raping the the local right, women yeah. and uh, even just injecting their own ideology okay, and yeah. treating others as primitives as, yeah. as an, an you know undeveloped mm-hmm. uh, but leaving all that <laughs> history yes. aside uh, you have brilliant anthropologists such as uh, Richard Geertz mm. uh, also uh, uh, the Australian uh, Michael Jackson, mm. whom I just discovered recently. Yeah. Um, so for them, for for Geertz anyway, there mm. is no just, you know, standing back and kind of observing and taking notes. Mm. F- he for that for him he really really immersed himself. Okay. And he did what the locals did and. Uh, and that way, he seemed also to have got a really helpful insight. Very nice into point. understanding. Because that, that, that highlights the embodiment you were talking about earlier as well. Because, yeah. you know, you can imagine an anthropologist standing, writing about the dance that's happening in front of them. Yeah. Versus dancing. Exactly. Which it's a is whole different experience. different, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, that participation really matters. Participation and uh, actually just the action doing it. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other, I think, a kind of a consequence of relational thinking that sometimes isn't appreciated is that it's not that, you know, if we take relational thinking to be to be to be possible at all, it's not that it's a good idea. It's that it's always happening, isn't exactly. it? There's a difference there. It's not that we're saying, look, as the anthropologist or it could be anyone else, you should participate. It's more saying, no, you are already participating. Yes, yes. Your presence there yes. is having, it's going to have an observer of effect course, at least. Of course. If you go to study anything, that is going yeah, to impact yeah. it in some way. Yeah, people are, you know, it's going to be something different mm. when, you know, a different person mm. that looks different to them, that acts different, that may not have a clue what's going mm. on. You know, when that person is present, yeah. uh, it's going to have an effect <laughs> so we so we we kind of just need to own that in some sense yeah, isn't it yeah, and, and yeah. make decisions and i suppose there aren't any a priori 
right ways to approach it because you know we, we can certainly imagine a situation where experimentally somebody will want to get less involved and kind of stand back but they're not making the assumption that they're not there because exactly. they are there they're, they're exactly. just including that as a variable yeah. in their yeah. equations it's in that sense just making you know you know stating it and then mm. you know being aware of it that makes the difference and even because even in just regular medical research in terms yeah. of double blind experiments which yeah. you know are, are really the gold standard people look for that is already you know taken yeah. into account to some extent isn't it the idea is that you know, the person obviously doesn't know what they're being given if it's a placebo trial with mm. an active medication but the person administering it doesn't know either yeah. and we're kind yeah. of looking at, at that and trying yeah. to take that into yeah. account so it's having that same kind of mindfulness isn't it exactly. in the way we look at things yeah yeah what is um, uh, dialogical thinking? And uh, <laughs> Mikhail Bakhtin, we've yes. talked about as well as somebody you've referenced before. Yeah. For somebody who doesn't know what dialogical thinking is, right, how, how would right. you in some way introduce uh, it and relate it to what we've just been talking about? Okay. Uh, um, it, uh, dialogical thinking is, uh, well, most of the original work comes mm. from uh, Mikhail Bakhtin. But uh, since then, a lot of people have developed it, and uh, especially Perlinal. Uh, yeah. He's written a brilliant book. So a lot of my understanding of dialogism comes from, you know, a mixture of Bakhtin mm -hmm. and Perlinal. Uh, and uh, as Perlinal states in his book, dialog dialogism or dialogical thinking mm. is just not one school of thinking. There are different you know strands or different routes routes you can take which seems appropriate but doesn't it give yeah, the subject matter <laughs> yes yeah but at the center of it is i suppose you could say is emphasizing the idea that we are essentially dialogical beings uh, so when you think about uh, epistemology for example mm. our knowledge of a certain thing you know, should incorporate the dialogical element of our being. Yes. And, uh, yeah, we just, it's emphasizing the, the role of the other, which is, a lot of it is uh, in line with uh, Ubuntu philosophy. Yeah, because it sound, sounds like that. Yeah, yeah. A little bit more familiar with dialogical uh, approaches than Ubuntu approaches, but from, yeah. from what you said, it sounded like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and what distinctions or what emphasis is there in dialogical thinking in anything other than just saying being relational? Because yeah. it seems we could say that. Yes. Have we got the job done then or have you found that that approach takes a particular perspective or has certain views of the implications of that? Uh, the implications is, uh, it's a lot of work is in, in language studies and mm -hmm. linguistics and uh, uh even though I'm very interdisciplinary, language mm -hmm. linguistics is not something I mm -hmm. really uh, have a good gr grasp on. Or mm. uh, it's a big area, isn't it? There's it a lot to be yeah. said about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's in terms of you know emphasizing the way language is understood. So also a lot of uh, dialogism works against this Western kind of mm. uh, you know individualistic kind of uh, assumptions so for perlinal for example uh, language is something that's dynamical uh, again as i was saying earlier mm. even when we are communicating yeah 
you know, your response depends on the words I'm saying and yeah. then what you are saying kind of informs, you know, my next sentence. Right. So it's for him, it's something that's, you know, contextual, that's, you know, constantly changing. Yeah, and it's co-constructed in that way. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Rather than, you know, the, the Chomiskian approach of, you know, you know, words having a certain meaning mm. and being, you know, that way. <laughs> More fixed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A bit of a Wittgenstein seems to come in as well to this, doesn't it, yeah. often? Yeah. Yeah, particularly yeah. in terms of the language aspect of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What um, What are the implications of this, do you think, in, in education, in therapy, and in other fields, you know, but, but they're, they're two very core fields that are very much about learning, yeah. I suppose. How, yeah. how do you see the implication? If somebody, uh, somebody takes relational dialogical thinking yeah. seriously, what might they practically yeah. do differently Actually, on a Monday morning? Yeah, actually, in in uh, in education, um, a lot of Vygotsky's uh, Vygotsky's mm. also uh, can be described as you know the pioneer of dialogical thinking. Yes, uh, um, you probably know more. Big Vygotsky fan. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so a lot of uh, his theorizing and his thinking has mm. been translated into you know classrooms and teacher-student relations mm. uh, so it, it has had an effect and it, yeah. it continues to have an effect yeah so it's, it's interesting how, how that's happened because it is true that very early on when you study psychology, you, you'll meet Vygotsky and, yes. and that's good. You yeah. know, uh, That being said, though, the particularly relational aspect doesn't seem to be quite emphasized to the degree it is in, in certainly branches of yeah. cognitive science, the focus on relational thinking. Yeah. It still kind of comes across to me anyway, a bit more like maybe a strong form of social psychology yeah. isn't it as opposed to that real relational depth to it and yeah. to be fair he can probably be used successfully either way to some extent yeah because it seems like we want to go a bit further with some of those relational principles yeah i suppose it's the that shift in in thinking uh especially say for example in the in the educational setting yeah that shift in thinking and looking at the child as something that you kind of scaffold, that you provide the necessary conditions right. for the child to learn, Very good, yeah. rather than say take the 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 other mm. uh, position where you know the the child is seen as you know little scientist or uh, you know something that can produce or solve problems or mm -hmm. construct this or that yeah. by herself. Yes, and this ties in beautifully then to themes of experiential learning, isn't yeah. it? Because it yeah. is this idea of doing rather than just knowing exactly, in that sense. Yeah. That yeah. brings in the embodiment as well. Exactly, yeah. I've, I've always, you know, obviously there's different educational systems around the world vary a bit, but I've always kind of loved the, the kind of play school. I mean, Marie Montessori is another example of this. We yeah. would be in, in line with, with, with some of those thinkers. Yeah. But we seem to unfortunately lose that at a certain point yes. along the way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, if anything, I find you get it more actually in third level again, I mean, not always by any means, but you know, you can do just this sense of, of interaction and just even the subject matter. I mean, certainly here in my research in UCD, using virtual reality, yeah. we're doing applied things where, you know, there's a lot going on in that sense, which is very exciting. Yeah. It seems like we'd like to bring a lot of that interaction back yeah, again yeah. to education. Yeah, interdisciplinarity and... Mm. Just like, you know, the, the 
just like cognitive science, the beauty of, uh, you know, the dialogical approach is it's very interdisciplinary. Mm. Uh, you can look at so many things from from a dialogical perspective. Yeah. Perlinel even goes as far as to see the brain as dialogical, mm. even though some people would say it's more uh, interactional rather than dialogical. Mm. But, uh, you know, you have language, uh, decision making. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> brain studies it's a lot of stuff going on and it's you know it's for people like us i suppose to try and pick at these things and yeah. understand the details of them but the interesting thing about good learning is that it, it really just happens so naturally in the right context yes yeah, you know yeah, and context matters you can get you can get free teachers you know if you're teaching ge geography you can get a mountain to do a lot of the work for yeah. you if you can just get access to yeah, it isn't yeah, it in some yeah. way which is yes. is kind of exciting um, so the other big theme or topic area, which I, I think certainly for me ties in nicely to this that you've been talking about, that is, I don't know how we would describe it, but some of the roles of automation, of, um, of, of technology and the social consequences, I suppose, of, of technology. Yeah. Um, what, what, what are you looking at in that area at the moment or that's, what are some of your interests? Yeah, that's uh, becoming uh, a big, uh, you know, issue of discussion mm. anyway uh, within uh, data scientists anyway uh, so mm. it's um, I think for say for you know doctors or engineers yeah you are you are aware that your uh, how your work will influence you know the other person or society so when you as an engineer when you build a bridge mm. you essentially you know, um, contemplate the effects of how people will use it, you know, right. uh, how it's going to affect, you know, the landscape or the lives of others. Mm. Uh, so the ethical aspect is also incorporated okay. in the design, see, in, in yeah. the building. But I think for a lot of um, data science also, it's very mm. new. Uh, the, the work has gone so far the ethical aspects of it hasn't really caught up mm. and all these you know software right. engineers they they you know build they develop these beautiful algorithms that can you know mm. do so much but they hardly think about what kind of effects they might have on on society and just like that finally yeah. we have jobs for philosophers <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> finally isn't it <laughs> I was actually, uh, just the other day, I was playing with this face app. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't, but somebody, I've heard somebody talking yeah, about it, but yeah, I haven't it's checked it. just in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So um, you can download this face app. You can uh, take a selfie or mm. upload your own already stored pictures. And okay. you can, you know, you can make it to make you older or to make mm. you, you know, to change your gender and okay. all sorts of things and to make you more cute or mm. more beautiful. And uh, one of the things that was shocked, that shocked a lot of, you know, social media mm. anyway, was that this software's idea of, you know, cuter or more beautiful was mm. making the skin more whiter. Right. So <laughs> So a lot of uh, black people, I also tried it on myself. When you ask yeah. it to, to make you, 
more beautiful it just makes you more white so it's yeah well i hope it doesn't make me whiter i mean the average <laughs> irish person that's funny we're trying to do the opposite yes, isn't it to be yeah. cute it's like fake tan all the time isn't it yeah, so yeah. That, this seems like an so inversion these are the the so a lot of people are saying that's the algorithms are just racist yes but so what's important is for people who who you know do these uh, you know train these neural networks mm. to consider in advance what their idea of beauty is okay and yeah. how that represents you know the the general mm. population not just what they have in mind yeah so that's where the the ethical side of thinking about Fascinating algorithms point. and neural networks comes in and um, the the problem is a lot of these you know algorithms are taken as neutral mm. unbiased yeah. and, you know objective Whereas people forget if the if the data you feed them right. is already biased, and I'm very skeptical that there is mm. data that's free from bias, yeah. then your outcome is gonna be you know based on the data I you see. get, so it's gonna I be see. biased. So and is that what happened in the case of that app? Is yeah, yeah. Where, where did it? Do you know where it got its data from originally? What's the what's the system it uses? Uh, I, I don't know about yeah, the data, we but we put the, a link to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you can put yeah, a link on yeah. it. Just yesterday, yeah. they issued a statement uh, mm. apologizing that the 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 data that they used to train their neural networks is biased. And I see. So they they, they, they presumably acquired some data and fed it in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah so. Which is 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 a, is, is a dangerous process. Yes. All right, because at least if something is self-learning and can correct in some way, you have some chance. But if it's a sort of a limited data set, exactly. Well, yeah. Then it kind yeah. of gets sealed, isn't yeah, it? Whatever errors are there to begin with. Yeah. It's it's up to the the people who who do these things to you know when they select their data mm -hmm. to think about what data represents you know what yeah, yeah. and if they so, can't hire a philosopher yes. pl plenty <laughs> at your local department looking for for, uh, for jobs yes, i'm sure yes uh, but but i mean that quite seriously and though i joke about hiring philosophers um you know one of the reasons i got into psychology rather than philosophy and though i love philosophy yeah. is is because I wanted to do something very applied yes. and my worry was you know would I really have the opportunity yeah. to do that with a philosophy background now there's plenty of people who are managing to do it but also plenty of people who aren't I suppose and yeah. when I see these people and you know I know some of them and they're so capable and able it's it's disappointing you know that their skill can't be applied more yeah. and it seems that technology uh, and, and we should say modern technology yes. because of course technology is is, is 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 a part of being human in a yeah. sense but has sped up the pace and the necessity it sort of amplified the need for these types of questions to be asked exactly. so there really is a great role and opportunity yeah, now for yeah. that also uh, a lot of you know uh, a lot of the consensus uh, among, you know, the data mm. scientists that are aware of these issues yeah. anyway, uh, which is not a great many of them, mm -hmm. <laughs> unfortunately, mm. is that uh, interdisciplinary work, mm. you know, in the humanities are really, really needed. Okay. Uh, within, you know, a lot mm. of these, these people who just, you know, yeah. spend all their time on, yeah. you know, machine learning and thinking about numbers they yeah. it's really they either have to work with people who because essentially at the end of the day yeah. what they produce interacts with society but they don't Absolutely. really have a very good idea of you know mm -hmm. 
the social sphere and how uh, people within that social sphere mm. operate and how right. it interacts with individual people in society. Well, it's a kind of ergonomics, cognitive ergonomics, isn't it? Imagine if you're a very, very skilled chair manufacturer, but you never consider people. <laughs> yes. You, you know, because you yeah. may, by all means, have the technical capability to make yes. these things. Yes. But the sense in how the person uses it, is it safe? Is it comfortable? Is it suitably adaptive for different types of bodies and, and different use cases and different circumstances, exactly. isn't it? All of this really matters. Exactly. Because it, it creates constraints mm -hmm. in how we interact. And, you know, we, even as we interact now, yeah. Yeah. the chairs are playing as much a part in this conversation as as a number of other factors are where it's kind of mediating isn't it how we it, communicate and how we sit etc exactly exactly and uh and it's um it's not considering you know how it mediates or how it interacts is uh it's People may not be aware of it who are really, you know, focusing yeah. on, 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 you know, developing their own sure. uh, neural nets or algorithms yeah. or whatever. But it's, it's very important uh, because uh, maybe not so much here in Ireland uh, or in Europe, mm -hmm. you see a lot of issues, you know, popping out in the States anyway. Cathy mm. uh, O'Neill has written a brilliant book maybe you can also stick a reference Certainly, to it, yeah. uh, called Weapons of Maths Destruction. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've read it. I haven't read it, no. So throughout it. the book, you know, example by example, mm. she she's a mathematician, she's a mm. brilliant mathematician who uh, graduated from Harvard, mm. and she illustrates how, you you know, using these algorithms to, sc to score people, to make decisions about, uh, say, in the courtrooms, who is more likely to commit crime okay. or uh, who is a better fit to get a mortgage or mm. a health insurance using all those algori algorithms really matter. Those, yeah. they really are yeah. creating you know a huge inequality right. and they are very unfair if you are already you know a minority or mm -hmm. if you are not earning a lot of money yeah yeah. Because at the end, at the center of them, the central objective is to maximize profit, to maximize okay. efficiency, sure. rather than you know, say to help prisoner yeah. prisoners, you know, Social cope with good. society. Yeah. There is not. She actually mentions there isn't actually much research on how prisoners, you know, cope on with life after their release. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. yeah. So the central objective when they are developing those algorithms is to just put people in jail mm -hmm. rather than, you know, mm -hmm. the positive, you know, mm. uh, more productive way mm. of, in terms of looking at society in general, mm. in way, more productive way of, uh, you know, how this could benefit society. And I wonder, will it trickle up in that, you know, as we, uh, a more of a local sense, start yeah. to think about how these technologies work, w w will that hopefully happen on a greater level as well? Because, again, there seems to be such a lack of vision. I mean, prison itself is such a good example. Yes. Are we trying to just exclude people, uh, you know, for safe safety? Are we trying to reform? Are we trying to punish? Yeah. Isn't it? There's such a confusion. Yes. And, of course, if you're trying to do all of them at the same time, from a, you know, a, yes. a behavioral point of view, it must be just so confusing for the system. Exactly. And, and the system, as far as Cathy is concerned anyway, is mainly concerned about punishing rather than mm. reforming the, the prison system. Yeah. 
there is no question about how it's working and yeah. or how it should improve. Right. And a lot of these algorithms, they are uh, because of because of you know intellectual rights and mm. all that. They are protected. I see. Uh, so you can't really scrutinize them. Okay. Even with that, mm. to begin with, they are like black boxes. People who build them even mm. have difficulty understanding them. Mm. And the longer they go on, the longer people kind of lose sight in yeah. how they work. So they become just, you know, even more black boxes. Absolutely. So, so, so yeah, because there's a huge issue with self-fulfilling prophecies, isn't there, with it's this? Because exactly. when you, you know, treat people a certain way, even, even you know, some people who to some degree maybe deserve, yeah. you know, certain things. The problem is when this this gets overdone or when there's implicit assumptions built in, this leads to a frustration which leads people to act against, exactly. which in turn leads to an attempt to punish. And exactly. th this just becomes a real self-fulfilling prophecy exactly. then. Exactly. And that's what actually the prison systems over in the United States anyway, mm. that's what they do. They have these hypotheses that say a certain demographics commit more crime that sure, demographics sure. usually is you know hispanics or blacks yeah and they you know patrol that area more heavily as opposed to you know other right. rich areas right. which commit as much crime but you know mm. more like white collar crimes sure but they you know if you focus your mm. your eye on something you mm. are going to find something yeah so they focus on certain demographics and they find, when they find something, they use that evidence to fuel their own... Yeah, yeah. Their own hypothesis to... So it kind of, it's like a loop. It just feeds itself, exactly. <laughs> it feeds itself. This is itself. where the systems theory comes back in again, yes. isn't it? You really, you can see it as such a pattern, isn't yeah. it? You can imagine it, really. Yeah. It's, it, it's so vivid in that way. Yeah, and they just use that evidence to, to reinforce their own first, you know, mm. their own justification for focusing on those demographics. So in, in keeping with the point of, you know, modern technology just being an extension of technology, we've always, as much as we've had a world that we've interacted with, we've always had some form of technology. Technology, yeah. I suppose, and the, the ability to, to, to use it in, in some shape or form. Um, the black boxes, the, the, the software that, that you talked about there, they seem to be something similar in that they've become more externalized and codified as you know what we would call algorithms. Yeah. But I suppose they've always existed, isn't it? In the past, it would have been in the in the mind of whatever that is, of the warden as he sits yes. there and makes a decision or yes. culturally extended in yes. some way. Yeah. That's what's interesting about this. We seem to be at yeah. a time now where we never would have, well, maybe I suppose in maybe religious textbooks or maybe certain guideline yeah. documents, but we seem to be in very local cases yeah. kind of codifying yeah. assumptions which is that's interesting true. that's true uh, but what makes these algorithms more dangerous mm. is even in the case of your example of that warden yeah you are aware he's a human being and you know that humans are you know prone to biases yeah but in the case of these algorithms you kind of assume they are neutral because they don't have that human error. I see. So and that is the assumption. That's, that's where I see. the destruction comes wow. from. That's that's. And the why problem. are people assuming that? <laughs> 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 uh, well, they are not humans. They can't make errors. They it's are assumption mathematical that the absence models. of humanity, therefore, yeah. is it's this sort of yeah. this strange reification yeah. of, of technology are, in some way. Yeah. And they are. Uh, Kathy actually provides brilliant examples of, you know, uh, basketball players. Mm. They are brilliant. 
they they actually do these you know statistics these algorithms mm -hmm. they are essential in determining whether a certain team wins or not mm -hmm. but the difference with between those kind of algorithms mm. and the other ones that are more of a black box is transparency mm. whereas the the algorithms used in say in the in, in managing a basketball yeah. team yeah. are constantly fed with new data in order to you know exactly improve. yeah and well the dynamic as we yes, said yeah and, and they are transparent people can see what goes on yeah you know what does what mm. but whereas uh, these other more protected black boxes i see there is no transparency even people who run them themselves don't mm. even you know have that great knowledge of got how, you. how so, they operate. So we've got the, this sort of dangerous algorithm in the middle, which isn't the one that's in the the, the mind and in inverted commas yeah. of the of the of the of the person like the warden, yeah. which has the advantage of being seen as just his opinion. Hopefully, yes. We don't have the other extreme then, which are these algorithms, which are are maybe pretty decent, but they're decent because they're transparent and because they're constantly being fed, they're yes. work in progress, yeah. they're dynamic in that way. Yeah. Yeah. The concern is over this strange kind of algorithm in the middle, which is the black box yes. that you mentioned, yeah. which isn't given the, the doubts that would yes. be applied to human beings. Yeah. It's seen as being in some way good because it's technology, but the yeah. con content yeah. of it isn't yes. probably scrutinized. Yeah. yeah, it is good. It's it's super efficient. You know, mm. It does a lot of computing in a very yeah. short of time, which has like never before yeah but yeah with that comes a lot of a lot of the values you can't quantify and it's tricky yeah. <laughs> uh, where did the, where did this get lost because i remember it as as a teenager certainly probably as a young teenager actually i think i was very young i might have been as young as 12 or 13 or something i remember doing a, a simple it course and yeah. an it course back then was was you know it's, it was it was it was very theoretical i suppose it was really talking about information processing in some way but just one of the the, the, the big things like the internet hadn't really kicked off in any serious way <laughs> that, that you know I, I would call it the internet careful you are showing your age I'm not, I'm not that old that's the funny thing it's just happened that okay. quickly you know it really isn't yeah. even that long ago but it's just i suppose you know the, the really in the 90s it kicked off in the right. thousands it's amazing you know how much has happened so quickly yeah. but the, the big thing that highlighted from the very beginning in in any it uh, material i encountered was garbage in garbage out garbage exactly. in garbage out exactly. they just emphasized this so much yes. and they yes. said look th these systems are essentially you know good they, yep. they're able to do what they do but what they do yes. can only be the product of what you give it exactly. it's they, what they said is essentially your fault if it doesn't work exactly. in a good way yeah yeah that's why uh, a lot of uh, you know consensual anyway mm. data scientists are like Cathy O'Neill are pushing towards uh, teaching all these developers and software engineers yeah. the ethics and the ethical and, and the, the you know the societal the humanity side okay. of things got you so it, it's not it's not all you know mm. we are doing but yeah as, opportunity yeah as you know as as far as you know we can you know emphasize mm -hmm. We can, you know, make people aware of the dangers and the problems of, you know, mm. you know, the, the opaqueness yeah. of these things, then we are, people who develop them are more likely to be aware and to kind of give it a second thought before they develop something mm. like this face up. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what you think about this, but I, I have a hope that because it's just happening so rapidly yeah. that we won't suffer from the kind of change blindness 
that we suffer from when things change slowly. Yes. You know, yeah. the way simplicity, the example is if you, you know, come every week to visit somebody and you move the table, you know, by a few yeah. millimeters each yes. time, you could really have it at the other end of the room yeah. and they wouldn't have noticed it moving. But it seems to be we're just, there's so much happening. Yeah. There's a problem with that, of course, because it's hard to keep yes. up with. And that's the point with the ethics yeah. I think you're making. Yeah. But also, hopefully, we're just so struck by these things that it really prompts to question them yeah. in yeah. a way that we mightn't. Is that the case, do yeah. you think? Yeah, well, I'm not sure. Um, Cathy O'Neill seems to think if we don't wake up and if we don't teach our data scientists, mm. you know, the humanity side of things, we are in danger of, yeah. you know, furthering inequalities. Well, that's true if, if they don't have the tools to do that. That's, yeah. a, that's a good point. She, yeah. So people like her seem to think we really, really need an interdisciplinary approach and we really need, you know, the social yeah. sciences when because they are essentially these products these mm. developments are essentially interacting and you know intersecting mm. with the social sphere so s some knowledge of how society works you know and what underlying assumptions there are is essential yeah uh, so she seems to think if we don't do that we are in danger of uh, a lot of people being disadvantaged and further right. marginalized it's reminding me of the old distinction in terms of how doctors were chosen for courses, yeah. you know, and it, it could be status, which yes. was a terrible way to yes. choose it, you know, or yeah. just because your parents were. That's that's a classic old Irish traditional yes. uh, tendency. Um, the other the other possibility was it was based on you know cold clinical scientific ability in yes. some respects which you know again is useful in some respects but then they started saying well what about this thing of bedside manner and you know yeah. which is a, a term they have to try and describe that interpersonal part mm -hmm. of it and how mm -hmm. important that is it's, it could something similar be true for data scientists really that we actually need you know these thinking feeling people i yeah, suppose at the yeah, core of this yeah, yeah definitely definitely i think not only data science any field mm. you know that essentially involves humans yeah. really need to interact with the human sciences. Right. But that was the old assumption, I suppose, is, oh, but the data science didn't interact with it or, yes. or, or was mediated yes. in a way that would be okay. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that was true, maybe it wasn't, but it yeah, certainly yeah. isn't now, yeah, is yeah. it? Well, it seems like a lot of, uh, you know, data scientists, well, the majority of them that's, mm -hmm. you know, being trained, don't actually think beyond what they are doing. Yeah. That is the problem. They don't mm. see, you know, they don't zoom out and see where it will go and how it will affect others. Yes, yeah. And yeah. I've, I've met both, uh, you know, and I'm encouraged to, you know, hear people who really, you know, yeah. take this stuff very seriously. But I've also met people who don't. You yeah. know, I've met yes. people who say, look, we could have no possible use for philosophy. Yeah. You know, the data is going to do what the data is going to do. Reflecting on this is is, is a waste of time. I've literally been told that yes. too. Yes. But yes. I've met plenty of people yeah. on the other side who yeah. are very i suppose empathic as yes. as well as very technically competent yes. so it's, it's exciting to yeah, see that yeah, that really yeah. exists that's true. That's i suppose true. we probably need a bit of both don't we because we need you know the the the, the tools i suppose for people to be able to reflect themselves on what, what they're doing yeah. but at the same time we all need somebody outside to some degree to be able to look in as exactly. well we need that reflection exactly that's what i'm hoping to do here in ucd mm. I, I hopefully will bring my uh, interdisciplinary <laughs> expertise yeah, yeah. In, uh, so that's what I'm hoping to achieve working with the data scientists here well, there is plenty to be done I'm sure <laughs> no, no, UCD is a big place but yes. uh, it's, yeah. it's so important it's a yes, great need it is. Yeah, yeah. and uh, 
as you are aware, you know, here in the School of Computer Science and, you know, uh, in the Insight Center for Data Analytics, mm. there is a lot of progress, a lot of work being done, yeah. uh, but not so much in terms of looking at the ethical side of the work. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, a, a great opportunity. Yeah. The dialogical approaches that we were talking about, we've talked more about kind of the relationship between people and other people yeah. and, and that kind of co-creation. When you bring the technology into that then yeah. and think more about people interfacing directly, not not so much the algorithms and the background and other part of it that maybe yeah. somebody uses in an office somewhere, yeah. but people and technology in a day-to-day -day sense. Yeah. What are you noticing in that at the moment? Uh, I, I don't actually... I don't know. And uh, smartphones are just a, such a, yeah. a kind of a, a, a ubiquitous example, isn't yeah, it, of, yeah. of the degree to which these things, our sense of self, I suppose, yeah, is yeah. just dissolved in that sense. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I think if David Chalmers in his work talking about auto and the notebook, yeah. and, you know, of course, the notebook is, yeah. is, is long gone in a sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the smartphone now yeah. and the degree of yes, that, that yeah. paper couldn't be more true. Yeah. And and. The, the boundaries are definitely blurring more and more mm. and more between, you know, your real actual <laughs> live self and your, your virtual presence. Mm. Uh, because speaking from personal experience, I, like many other people, I, s I presume, spend a lot of time, you know, on, on Twitter or other yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, mediums. And... Uh, you are in a sense creating you know a, a, a sense of self mm. and uh, sometimes uh, the boundaries are so blurred you even uh, get confused mm. between what happened for real and what took place over on twitter <laughs> so yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it is, and it's it's a sort of a confusing time. So in yeah. in in whether it's dialogical principles or whether it's Ubuntu or yeah. whether it's any of, of, of what you've encountered, yeah. how do you think some of those in principles might inform how we relate directly with technology moving forward? Oh, um, again, I'm going to because I don't know much about this. I'm going to speak from personal experience, Please, yeah. and uh, uh, I think it's undeniable that our presence in, in the virtual world essentially mm. influences, you know, and, and kind of directs and shapes our sense of who we are. Mm. A lot of what I learn, you know, comes from interacting with other scientists and philosophers, uh, say, on Twitter. Mm. And... Um, it just becomes part of you know my 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 sphere of knowledge. Yes, and yeah. It, it kind of builds up and. Uh, and it, it's, it's amazing <laughs> because I, I, as I think I've said to you before, I consider you a Twitter guru in that sense, and <laughs> that you seem to know what the hell you're doing basically. Because I certainly don't, and well. uh, I'm you know I'm not, I'm not technologically incompetent by any means. I use a lot of technology, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's it's. It's a fascinating, again, extend itself, yeah. I suppose, because, you know, the ideas, I, I, what I'm terrible at is just knowing how to sort all this information. That's my biggest problem. That's and I think true. that's a common problem, I think it people is, describe, it is, isn't yeah. it? And there is, you know, a negative side and a positive yeah, side. I see like that. everything. Yeah. So <laughs> the negative side is you just spend way too much time on Twitter mm. and you feel unproductive. It's easy. But the, the positive side is also. Uh, I think 
my interactions with others, it's, it's real life mm -hmm. interactions really, uh, you know, help me develop, you know, mm. my research, my own knowledge, my awareness of, you know, the general political environment. Mm. And uh, they are essential. Your reach is so great. It's amazing that, you know, I'll, I'll see a tweet of yours, I'll yeah. follow an article or something. It's amazing the degree to which you can impact people that you're not directly meeting yeah, in the day-to-day -day yeah. sense. It's, it's truly amazing. That's that's the brilliant thing about Twitter. You can directly interact with someone who has written mm. some article that you loved and you can get their personal, real-life yeah. feedback and comment. Mm. That's, that's uh, the great thing about it. And it's unusual because in some ways it's deeper than sometimes face-to-face -face interaction will be because exactly. the depth you can go to quite quickly yeah. because there's a sort of a, a consent that we're all talking about this topic yeah. that we can kind of do instantly. Yes. Whereas often you'll meet somebody you might say, how's the weather? Yes. Isn't it? It's strange about, <laughs> yes. it may seem less personal, yeah, yeah. But, but it yeah, can be yeah. more sometimes. Yeah, you kind of cut the... <laughs> mm. yeah, the yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, but also, uh, it's uh, you. You have some sort of, you know, uh, agency in terms of choosing who you want to follow, who you want to hear from. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what kind of information you want to get. So, to some extent, you know, it's up to you to to kind of shape your f your absolutely your input. You the, f the information you get. Uh, as opposed to say Facebook, where you just uh, yeah, yeah, that's the problem have I have. I think is shaping that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. A lot of decisions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you been keeping up much on the developments in virtual uh, reality or mixed reality? Do you have any views on that from your your background or research? Uh, I'm afraid not very much. A lot mm. of what I know comes from your research. Okay, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sure. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting because, again, it just seems to be drawing us more into it. Yes, and yeah. I, I suppose mixed reality is a yeah. big thing that's happening whereby, you know, rather than being on the smartphone, now it may be superimposed in the environment yes. in front of us. Those tweets, you know, yeah, that might be coming yes. up at the corner of our eye rather yeah, than yeah. in the phone in our pocket. Exactly. So, again, it's becoming more ergonomic, I suppose, which could be good or yeah, bad yeah, in that yeah, sense. Yeah. We may reach a time soon where we're never looking at our phone ever again because right. we don't have a phone, so to speak. Okay. So. That's interesting, isn't yeah. it? Because on one hand, the problem is we're always looking at our phone in yeah. a sense because of that change, because yeah, yeah. it's potentially there. It's augmented okay. in our reality. Why but do you think we may not have our phone in at some stage? Think about the it. The phone is a very kind of temporary thing, isn't it, in, in our history? Because we didn't have them quite, you know, only yeah. recently we had mobile phones yes. anyway. And... Um, they're quickly kind of trying to get rid of them as they bring in various okay. forms of glasses or even just kind of adaptive screens right. and things like that in the environment. Right. Again, the ergonomics of yeah. interacting through this thing, they became better when they became touchscreen. Mm -hmm. But again, there's this sort of movement against glass rectangles right? <laughs> where people okay. want to get rid of screens. Okay. And one of the classic examples is if you're driving, you know, not having to look down to yeah. see your speed, but... It's up in front of you, projected right, on the windscreen, right, things okay. like that. Yeah, yeah. So what what would it mean for you if your Twitter wasn't on your phone or on your laptop, but if it was kind of part of your life floating around <laughs> you? <laughs> I am I am not as immersed in the mixed reality, uh, you know, uh, literature as you are. But uh, for me, it's really difficult to to the idea of just having no phone and having that screen or yeah. those glasses replace the phone and um, well takes a while to to get used to some 
something mm. new. So f- mm. to me, that would be something radical. Mm. Uh, with the pace things are going at, we can probably ask you in about six months, I think, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't probably, surprise me yes. the w- with the way it is yeah, going. Probably, probably, yeah. So uh, to draw to draw some of these great ideas we've been exploring together, yeah. um, I wanted to ask you um, if you had some advice for people who have similar interests in this area, yeah. who want to at most dedicate their life to it, at least jump into it and explore these kinds of ideas, as a, a kind of a multidisciplinary and somebody who has that kind of background and has been on the journey you've been on, what kind of advice would you give for somebody who also is a bit multidisciplinary and wants to pursue their interests? I think interdisciplinary is the way forward. Whatever topics you are looking at, whether it is you know uh, ethics in data science or you know trying to understand human behavior yeah, or the yeah. brain, it's just approaching it from one perspective from one discipline is just not enough Mm. you you just you have to really be multidisciplinary and you have to you you know bring in insights from as many perspectives as possible in order to make to move forward in in order to make some some contributions so should people feel confident to just jump in and yeah not worry about the boundaries too much (laughs) yeah yeah the boundaries are blurring i think Mm. and uh, i think a lot of universities are you know introducing a lot of interdisciplinary courses and interdisciplinary approaches Mm. and uh, i think that's the future this may be a similar question or a similar answer but as you kind of zoom out and give yourself a, a satellite perspective on your life, the journey you've been on, if you think about maybe yourself when you were way younger and then you yeah. think about where you are now, any kind of key insights stand out for you? Anything you're much clearer on now than you would have been then? Anything that's a kind of a key point or takeaway for you? Uh, um, this might sound a, like a bit of a paradox. The more, uh, you know, I'm aware of the so many different perspectives and different disciplines the more i am aware that the problem i'm trying to to come at is much more ambiguous and Mm. problematic than i initially thought Mm. because I, i would have come from you know a very simplistic approach assuming this is the problem yeah the solution is gonna go this way. At okay, least. yeah. So the the more you are aware of the different perspectives, the more you are aware of the nuances, mm. and uh, yeah, it's it it's it's brilliant because if you want to have a very you know gestalt kind of whole approach, you really have to consider all perspectives and all sides in order to come up with a true solution. Wonderful. What a great point. <laughs> if people want to find out a bit more about your work and to keep in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I have a blog. Uh, and we'll add some links. Yeah, yeah, and I'm also on Twitter. Wonderful. So follow yeah. you on Twitter, definitely. It's, <laughs> it's well worth it. You won't be disappointed in terms of content. Uh, listen, Abeba, it's been fabulous having you on the podcast and uh, chat again soon. Thanks Thank for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It's been brilliant. Thank you. <laughs>